0: Are you? <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know how to tell him I'm not praying for snow tomorrow um, because there's some place I want to go and some place I want to be. And I remembered such a funny memory. Five or six years ago, we had a day with two or three days in a row of snow and ice and canceled school. And the first day that the weather broke was a Thursday morning. The kids went back to school and we got to come back to Thursday morning Bible study. And during the praise time. Woman after woman stood up, thanking God, now listen to this, thanking God for the peace of three days at home, and the, just the the wonderful time of quietness, and sitting in front of the fire, and I was listening, thinking, oh, they don't have little boys at their house, and the more I listened, I thought, oh, they don't have children at all at their house, and finally, a very brave woman on the back row stood up, and she said, I'm thanking God that the snow is gone and the children are back in school. <laughs> so if you love the cold and if you were praying for snow and ice this morning with some of the children, my prayers were contrary to yours. So I'm sorry we weren't in agreement on that. <clears throat> my oldest son is in high school. He has the benefit, um, has had the benefit of taking a class called Rhetoric And in a rhetoric class, they learn all kinds of things like how to argue and how to debate and how to use logic. And um, this class is really a huge advantage to this child when he is disagreeing with his mother. But I've learned a few things from him. And the first thing I've learned is that in any um, logical debate or discussion, the first thing you want to do is define your terms figure out what it is that you're talking about or sometimes arguing about and making sure you're actually talking about the same things. I think to study Mary Magdalene, we really have to begin by defining some terms and we have to really know who is Mary Magdalene and who she isn't? Because I think of all the people in the Bible, she probably more than anyone else is the victim of mistaken identity. So many things have been assumed and presumed about her. So many things have been accepted as truth about her that are not found anywhere in the scripture, not information that God has ever given us about Mary Magdalene. So I want to talk about who she is and I want to talk about who she isn't. And for our study today, this is all we're using. We're using the information that God gives us in his holy, inspired, and perfect word for information on Mary's life. We aren't using myth. We aren't using urban legend. We aren't um, hypothesizing about artistic drawings. And we definitely aren't using popular fiction novels to get information about Mary's life. So let's get that straight. God tells us very little about her life before she encountered Jesus. All we know is that she was a woman who was possessed by seven demons. So we know that she was a woman in need of the healing touch of a Savior. And when she experienced it, she would never be the same again. God never refers to her as a former prostitute. I'm not sure how that label got attached to her, but there is nothing um, to suggest that that was a part of her life. God does sometimes refer to other followers by their former life. He calls Matthew a former tax collector. He never calls Mary a former sinful woman or anything like that. He never identifies her um, in relation to her human relationships with other people. He never says Mary Magdalene, the mother of so-and-so, the daughter of so-and-so. He only identifies her really in her relationship to Jesus. That's where her identity is. Is found and in that identity we see a woman in love with her savior a woman obediently following her savior i think as women we can definitely learn something from that i think so often we fall into the trap of believing that our identity comes from our human relationships or perhaps our past failures or our struggles and our identity really comes from our relationship to jesus christ and from nothing else So in God's perfect word and in his holy word, he describes Mary Magdalene as a woman who has experienced the grace of God. And as a result, her life is devoted to ministering to Jesus, to advancing the cause of Jesus, to advancing the cause of righteousness in her world. Mary's life is the story of grace. In your homework, I had you flipping around between all four gospel accounts quite a bit. I'm not going to make you do that today. I've included some of these on your verse sheet. So let me just read to you from Luke 8.2. Now it came to pass afterward that he, Jesus, went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others who provided for him from their substance. There was another passage you read in Mark 16 that also referred to Mary Magdalene as the woman whom Jesus had cast seven demons from. So if we're going to define who Mary Magdalene is using God's word, we know her name is Mary. She's from Magdala, which is a very large city on the Sea of Galilee. She was possessed by seven demons. And after Jesus healed her, she became a female follower of Jesus. Some people call her a female disciple. She was serving, she was ministering, she was even financing his work and his ministry. Each time in the Gospels when Mary's name is mentioned with the exception of one... Each other time her name is mentioned first and many Bible historians believe that when your name is mentioned first it means you are considered significant, you are probably considered the leader. And so oftentimes you will see Peter's name listed first as Peter was considered the leader. So there is a lot of speculation that Mary because her name always comes first was probably the leader among the women who followed Jesus and ministered to him. There's also an idea that her name comes first because she was probably prominent and affluent. We don't really know anything about that. But if she was an independent woman following him around, somehow financially supporting his ministry, I think you can believe that somewhere she had some financial means at her disposal. My personal belief is that she was a leader, um, that she had a heart so committed to ministering to Jesus and to serving God and Jesus that the other women were drawn to her. And I believe that's why her name is always written first. She has a heart that's on fire for God and a heart that's full of gratitude. So in a day when it was considered sinful for a man to speak to a woman in public, even his own wife, we talked about that a little bit last week with the the woman at the well, in a day when many rabbis considered it a sin to teach women the law, um, Jesus was speaking to women. Jesus was teaching women. Sometimes when Jesus was healing women, he was touching their hand. Jesus was asking women, come follow me learn from me. That was a remarkable, remarkable thing, but it took a remarkable woman to defy the conventions and the norm of the day and to choose to follow Jesus, to choose to become a female disciple down an unknown path. It took a leader. I do want to talk just a little bit about demonic possession, because all we know about her former life is that she was controlled by seven demons. And I want to tell you what scripture says. Scripture says that demons are real beings. They are fallen angels. They've been cast out of heaven, just like Satan. And their goal and their purpose is only one thing. It's to undermine the cause of God, to undermine the cause of righteousness, to undermine the cause and the work of Jesus. That's who demons are, and that's what they do. That is their purpose. There are so many Bible historians that believe that demonic possession was at an all-time high during the years that Jesus walked and ministered on the earth, and particularly in this part of the world. Now, I think if we know that the purpose of a demon is to undermine the cause of Christ, it makes perfect sense that when Christ is walking and talking and healing and performing miracles, that the demonic forces would unleash all their wrath and all their power in this part of the world to fight against Jesus and his causes. Had you read in your homework about um, some of the people who were demon-possessed. Most of those people were from an area called Gadara, which is right across the sea of Galilee from where Mary lived. And when you read about those people, you read that uh, these people actually lived in the tombs. Now, first I thought, oh, like cavemen. Then I thought, no, the tombs, that's where people are buried. These people are so deranged. They are living in the cemeteries. They're living among the dead. We don't know if they choose to live there or if society has just so shunned and rejected them that that's where they live. That's the kind of darkness they live among. You read about that man, um, the supernatural physical strength that he had, that people were afraid of him. Uh, Whenever we read about someone who is possessed by a demon, we need to understand that their bodies and their minds are totally controlled by these demonic forces. They are in physical and emotional torment day and night. These are people who truly live in darkness. The same demons that we read about that possess these men, that you understood their behavior, those are the kind of demons that Mary Magdalene lives with. That's the torment that fills her day and her night. Mary Magdalene truly lived in darkness. But even when she lived in darkness and despair and struggled with demonic possession, we know from this side of the story, we know that God's grace was at work in her life. It was God's grace that was allowing her to suffer and struggle and experience great need. On your outlines, God's grace sometimes allows suffering and need. Here's the second term we're going to define. Grace. My Bible dictionary says grace is freely bestowed pleasure, joy, and delight. It is favorable regard for the recipient. And from a Christian perspective, you can say that grace is God showing man favor. Several years ago, I was reading a book by Elizabeth Elliot, and she defined grace this way. The Lord of the universe the one who is the ruler over all authorities, the blessed controller of all things, the king over all kings, the master of all masters, the only source of immortality, the one who lives in unapproachable light. That one bends his ear to the prayer of a sinner and when asked, comes in and makes his home with us. Emmanuel, God with us, this is grace. I thought that was so beautiful and I'll never forget that. Definition of grace. Grace is God coming to us, always giving us his best, frequently when we don't deserve it, sometimes when we don't even want it. God comes to us and offers us his best. Sometimes his grace shatters our expectations. Sometimes his grace puts us in a place where we will experience profound need and struggle. Sometimes this grace puts us in a place where we know that Jesus is all we have. God's grace allowed Mary to live in total darkness so that she could rejoice totally in his light and in his healing. On your verse sheet, 2 Corinthians twelve nine says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So often we see God's great power and his great love displayed so dramatically when you contrast it with human weakness. And that's what we see in Mary Magdalene. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Mary is such a testimony of great human weakness and God's great love and grace and strength. I imagine that her joy and her gratitude over her deliverance was so much greater and so much sweeter because God had allowed her to live part of her life in such darkness and in such pain. The contrast provided joy for Mary and it provided an amazing witness and testimony to an unbelieving world, just as it does for us. So over and over again, we see grace arriving for Mary Magdalene. Next on your outline is God's grace intervenes. He intervened with Mary when Jesus met her and cast out the demons. An amazing thing, all through the Gospels, it's story after story of people coming to Jesus wanting to be healed. Blind people, lame people, folks with leprosy. Demon-possessed people never came to Jesus to be healed. Demons are fallen angels. They recognize Jesus Christ. They are afraid of Jesus Christ. So whenever Jesus healed someone from demon possession, it was because a family member or a friend intervened and came to Jesus on their behalf, or it was because Jesus encountered those people on the road. And you read about the demons saying, Jesus of Nazareth, leave us alone. When Jesus healed Mary Magdalene, Jesus had to go to her. Jesus had to go find her with his grace and heal her. That was God's grace intervening in her life the first time. And God's grace intervenes in our lives for the first time as he offers us each salvation Colossians 1, 13 and 14 on your verse sheet says, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He has brought us in the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in 2 Timothy it says, It's not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and his grace. For all of us, all of us who have received this great grace, all of us who have received salvation, God has intervened grace has intervened and God keeps showing up and grace keeps coming and keeps intervening in our lives. Sometimes it looks different than others. Sometimes grace intervenes in a way that rescues us and frees us and resolves something exactly like we want. Sometimes grace intervenes in another way, in an unexpected way. But grace always shows up for those of us who have found salvation in God and are seeking his presence. When we seek God, he always comes to us in our place of need. Hebrews 4.16, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Just like Mary, we can have confidence that grace will arrive. What happens next in her life is such a testimony of a woman who is living in love with the grace of God. Mary leaves everything to follow her rabbi. She becomes a female follower, a disciple of Jesus. We know that she was ministering to Jesus. She was financing his work. She was probably taking care of the material needs of the disciples. She was continually seeking her Lord. I like to think that as she cooked and bought groceries for those men. She was creating her own women's ministry. She was in the market talking to the women who were there shopping. Let me tell you what God has done for me. Let me tell you how Jesus has saved me. Let me tell you what he's done. Come let me introduce you to him. Come meet my rabbi. Learn from my rabbi. Mary has discovered a vocation and a calling And many women in that day didn't have a vocation or a calling. And I think she responds to it because she's driven and she's propelled by gratitude. The gratitude and joy that she feels in response to God's grace cannot be contained. I think we see great maturity in here. She is not simply experiencing the emotion of gratitude. She's acting on it. You see her emotion and her volition. You see faith and works. I sort of came up with a little term for it. It's gratitude and action. And I thought that was so beautiful. She is serving, giving. She's ministering in very unconventional ways that women hadn't done before. One of my favorite authors says this, People who are thankful for all the grace they have received want more than anything to give back to God. They can't help but live their lives as witness to God's salvation. Who among us doesn't want to live our lives as witness to God's salvation, witness to his grace, witness to the amazing things that he does for us every day? The psalmist says in 116, How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I think Mary Magdalene could have written that. How can I repay the Lord? He's delivered me from these seven demons. I'm going to follow him anywhere. Mary Magdalene fell in love with the grace of God. Several things happened. She developed, she received this Christmas, this Christian vocation, this calling to go share God's grace and teach people about him, an awareness that grace is all around her. Um, She became passionate about teaching the world. To see God's grace, to receive God's grace, that's something that can happen to each of us when we fall in love with grace. We want to share it. For Mary to share it, uh, it really required sacrifice. She had to pack up and really become a nomad. I I like to think that when Jesus healed her, I wonder what her first thought was. If you've spent much time talking to people who have really suffered from uh, uh, physical health, emotional trauma, major crisis, so often when you ask them, what do you want?, They don't want pie in the sky. They don't want big, glorious things. They want normal. I want a normal day. I want my normal life back. I like to think that when Mary was healed, was her first thought, now I can have normal. Normal would be a home and a husband and children. I don't know if she wanted normal, but God had something very unusual, very unnormal in store for her. The life that he had planned for her, began with gratitude, and it was gratitude in action that couldn't be contained. That was her response to grace. Another response to grace, I think, as we see it all around us. We become very sensitive to it. So many lovely, beautiful things that happen in our day we just dismiss as good luck good fortune, some lovely thing. A person who's in love with God's grace recognizes everything good that comes to them as something that's coming from the hand of God. Sometimes it is the big dramatic rescue, the big great experience. Other times, it's a beautiful little thing. It's a sunset at the end of a really trying day. It's great kindness from great friends in big and small ways. All the good that we receive we can recognize and know that it's God's grace covering us and taking care of us. James 117 says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. I think a mature woman really learns to respond to God's grace by taking it on as a vocation and wanting to share it with others and by really having eyes that are open that recognize grace all around them. We see Mary only three more times in the gospel accounts, and I did have you flipping back um, between all those accounts because you really need to read all of them to get all of the information. Each time we see Mary, she's acting on the grace that she received. She's following Jesus, and usually she's following him to very unexpected places. The next time we see her, she's standing among the crowd watching Jesus' crucifixion clearly an unexpected place. On your verse sheets, Matthew 27, many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. On your outline, God's grace reveals Jesus in unexpected places. All of the gospel accounts portray Mary Magdalene and the women watching the crucifixion. They're all a little bit different in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. They clearly describe a very angry, violent, almost mob-like scene um, where Jesus is insulted and mocked and sneered at, where he is being verbally as well as as physically abused. Clearly, the foot of the cross was not a safe place to be. It was not a comfortable place, and it was not an easy place. It was probably threatening and dangerous and violent. And when Jesus is being physically and emotionally and verbally abused in this dangerous place, so many other followers abandon him and deny him and reject him. But we see Mary staying there, staying faithful, staying steadfast in her love and her devotion and her gratitude. Matthew 27, it says, Many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And then in John 19, it's a little different. It says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Chopas, and Mary Magdalene. The differences in those accounts, I believe, represent different times during the day. The time that Jesus hung on the cross, it was a six-hour ordeal. So it's probable that the women early on in the day in that ordeal were standing at the foot of the cross. And as the day went on, they moved a bit further back. Um, But we know that they were there for the entire day. I'm sure that Mary never expected to follow her rabbi, her savior, her healer. She never expected to follow him to the foot of the cross. Um, I was amazed and humbled when I read this, that Mary stays at the foot of the cross, a dangerous and a violent and a terrible place to be. But Mary chooses not to abandon Jesus in this place. And it's frightening and it's hard, but she stays there. And I kept thinking, would I stay? Would I go and would I stay? And I want to say the answer is yes, but I really don't know. But I couldn't help but think, don't we all have moments in life that are like that? Not at the foot of the cross maybe, but we have disappointing, heartbreaking, earth-shattering moments when we have to decide, are we going to stay with Jesus in this moment? Are we going to abandon him now and all that he's told us is true? Are we going to stay with him? And I think for Mary, she really had no other alternative. To abandon Jesus, to turn her back on the foot of the cross, was to turn her back on God and God's plan and God's continued grace in her life. That's really not much of a choice. So I think for us, we need to remember in those hard places, in those foot of the cross heartbreaking moments when we're wondering if we're going to abandon Jesus or not, Just know to turn your back on Jesus then is turning your back on God's continued grace. You need to remain with Jesus in the hard places, just like Mary remained with him at the foot of the cross. Stay with his grace. Don't deny him. Because of her devotion and her loyalty, she stayed at the foot of the cross. And she received this grace of God revealing himself in such an amazing new way and in such an unexpected place. Mary and the other women here see Jesus' character and love in such a beautiful, personal way. And those who weren't at the foot of the cross didn't get to see this. They didn't see Jesus lovingly delegate the care of his mother to the disciple John. They didn't see Jesus ministering to the criminal who's hanging beside him, who just earlier had been, you know, ridiculing him. They didn't hear Jesus praying, asking God to forgive these people who are hurting him. And they didn't see Jesus surrendering his spirit. They didn't see Jesus submitting to God's plan for the world's redemption. The women, Mary, they saw it. They experienced it. They received that grace. And it was an incredible grace that I think they didn't know they were getting it at the time. Uh, And so often, grace is like that. It takes days, weeks, years, it takes hindsight, it takes time spent trusting God to realize grace sometimes and to recognize it in unexpected places. An interesting thing I thought about that, all of the gospel accounts are written based on the eyewitness testimony of the writer, Or if the writer wasn't there, they went out and interviewed eyewitnesses. So in all of those accounts, the Gospel writers, John, was the only one who's ever named as being there. So if you stop and think, who were the eyewitnesses that they interviewed to write these accounts? Who do you think gave them this information? Mary was there. The women were there. Nobody else got to experience firsthand. They only got to hear their eyewitness account. We have it in our Bible today because Mary was there experiencing it. And that was an amazing grace for Mary and for those other women. Three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each conclude their account of this terrible day that Jesus died on the cross with with the same image. And it's the image of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. The day is over, the tomb has been sealed, and the women sit there. I doubt that Mary ever wanted to be sitting outside the tomb of her dead Savior, just as I doubt she ever wanted to stand at the foot of the cross. But it was God's continued grace that took her to those places to experience him in a new and a profound way. John 21, 18, on your verse sheet So when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old or mature, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. I know Mary thought she was being taken to many places that she didn't wish to go, but it was God's grace that was taking her there, and it was God's grace that was keeping her there. We saw Mary, one of the last to leave the foot of the cross, the last one at the tomb of her rabbi. Her devotion to Jesus, whether living or dead, is steadfast. I think an amazing thing is Mary gets to be the witness. For the skeptics and the doubters who said things like, he wasn't really dead, he was hidden away somewhere, Mary is the witness. She saw him surrender his spirit. She saw his body die. She saw his body prepared for burial and laid in a tomb. She saw the big enormous stone rolled in front of it. She saw the stone sealed. Mary was the witness of all the mournful scene so that she could be a witness when God's grace revealed his victory in another unexpected place. I would like for you to open your Bibles to John 20 and read this account with me. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. but she didn't realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic,